Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to share some exciting opportunities. And please feel free to share this with people who you know, who will also find it of interest. So today, I have an, I have an exciting guest and, and a really interesting topic. And, and, and it's, a, it's kind of a hybrid, because the topic was born out of something that's been taking place in the news here that I think we as Jews and Christians can all kind of grab our arms around. And it's very important to us, the ideas of religious modesty. And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about why that's important and why it's significant and how we as Jews uh, embrace it. And I'm also have a special guest, which double dips with our uh, monthly Ask the Rabbi uh, program. So here we're getting into a little current events, a little uh, Jewish tradition, and of course, Ask the Rabbi. So I'm really pleased to introduce Rabbi Ilan Adler. He is the son of Hungarian Holocaust survivors and was born in Jaffa here in Israel. He's a graduate of the Providence Hebrew Day School and Rhode Island College and attended Yeshiva University, where he received rabbinic ordination in 1986. While at Yeshiva University, he was a leader in its outreach seminars to public school and also Yeshiva students and coordinated a, a, a variety of um, Shabbatonim, weekend, weekend Shabbat experiences and uh, multi-day encounters for, uh, for students and faculty alike. As a highlight, while working at Yeshiva University, he was one of the aides for two years to, to, to one of the famed uh, rabbis of, of the last century, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, joining, joining an inner circle of those privileged to be at his side when he visited New York. Rabbi Adler's first pulpit was in Stamford, Connecticut, where he was assistant and then associate rabbi for an 800-family uh, Orthodox synagogue. And while he was there, he was also a hospice chaplain and active in interfaith activities. This was followed by, by being an associate rabbi in Baltimore at a, three, a 1300 family Orthodox congregation. And for our uh, Christian listeners who don't think that that's so big, by Jewish standards in an Orthodox synagogue, that's considered, if, if we can borrow the term, a mega synagogue. And then he had his own pulpit for 10 years in a 250 family member Orthodox synagogue. While in Baltimore, Rabbi Adler served as president of the Baltimore Board of Rabbis, he was an executive member of several Jewish community agencies, and he developed easy and very significant interfaith relationships, ranging from the gamut of Christian denominations, including Baltimore's Cardinal William Keeler, the president of the, w the NAACP at the time, and several Muslim imams. In Baltimore, Jews and non-Jews found Rabbi Adler's teachings on Judaism to bring them closer to their own spiritual roots. Following 25 years in the active rabbinate, Rabbi Adler made Aliyah, here to Israel with his wife, Dr. Rifka Lambert Adler. The Adlers now live in Efrat in the Judean mountains, south of Jerusalem, and by full disclosure, we are neighbors. 
Since 2010, Rabbi Adler has been principal of a girls' high school where he continues to teach. He's hosted a radio show for five years, has a counseling practice, coordinates the community uh, Anglo lecture series, and bringing well-known speakers here to the community and is widely engaged in a variety of community affairs. He enjoys teaching several Zoom classes on Judaism to Christians around the world, and he also teaches and lectures to Jewish audiences several times a month, both here locally in Efrat and in Jerusalem, and occasionally now that the pandemic is beyond us, traveling to the U.S., where he serves as a scholar in residence throughout the Jewish community there. Rabbi Adler also officiates at life cycle events here in Israel for Israeli and Jewish families from around the world that come here to celebrate these, these events. He's on the executive committee of the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, uh, here in Israel, and he also travels to the U.S. often as a scholar in residence. Most important, in addition to being married to Rivka, he is the joyous Saba, or grandfather, and appreciates the blessings of seeing his children raising their children here in the land of our forefathers. Rabbi Adler, it is a delight. We had a lovely coffee together uh, about two weeks ago, and this that kind of was the trigger for this. But then things kind of blew up in the news around us then, and, and I didn't really have the sense of how significant that was. So welcome. It's a pleasure to see you again, and uh, thank you for taking the time. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for for reading that uh, introduction, and I'm wondering if you have any time left for the show. <laughs> well, I, you know what? I Sometimes I like to read things that are formal. In your case, I did because there's really a lot of substance around it. And I want, and I want our listeners to understand the perspective from which you're coming as an Orthodox rabbi as we go into this conversation. And actually, even before that, I didn't know your parents were uh, Holocaust survivors, much less from Hungary. But I'm really interested, maybe with, with time permitting now or, or at, a, at a later date, I want to speak about that growing up here um, with parents who are Holocaust survivors. But I want to speak specifically it is not a given by any stretch that an Orthodox rabbi receiving ordination at Yeshiva University would have anything of substance to do with Christians. How does, how does an Orthodox rabbi like yourself, spending most of your career in the, in the pulpit in Baltimore, which is a very large, strong Orthodox Jewish community, how do you end up interacting and teaching uh, Christians? Well, I think uh, I would have to say that it goes back to my dear father of blessed memory, who um, used to go as a Holocaust survivor at least once a year to many, many public schools uh, in order to speak about his experiences there. And uh, in the synagogue where he was a ritual director, which means he was not a rabbi, but was one of the functionaries of the synagogue for uh, there about a thousand families. Um, he was often uh, dealing with... Uh, with people from uh, not not the Jewish religion, people who came for various celebrations, weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, and all these kinds of various occasions. And he would get very friendly with them. And he was extremely open to just being the face of faith for many, many people, including, of course, the people in his synagogue, in his temple. And um, it was not a big jump for me to feel that I also would like to know as much as I can and as many as I can who are outside of my own religion or tradition or faith. And, um, but, but I, if you wanted to use the word anomaly, anomaly mm. that I as an Orthodox rabbi and am quite an anomaly 
within the Orthodox world, reaching out to, to Muslims and reaching out to Christians and reaching out to other faiths, I would say that's absolutely true. It is, and, it definitely uh, is, definitely yes. is. So uh, interestingly, when I was installed as the rabbi of this 250 family congregation, um, I wanted to have speakers who showed what I called then the widest face of God. Wow, and so I nice. invited, I invited that time the head of the NAACP, who we became very friendly, who spoke at my, um, my installation. I invited Cardinal Keeler that you mentioned, who spoke at my installation. I invited Orthodox uh, leaders, I invited reform uh, individuals. So uh, I think in that sense, I was pretty successful for that one event. But I wanted to show people as I'm starting this new rabbinic position in Baltimore, for which lasted about 10 years before we moved to Israel, I wanted to show the people that I am very, very interested in not only my tradition and my religion, but I'm also interested in being very, very sensitive <clears throat> to what other people are believing and practicing and uh, trying to create a sense of unity and a sense of what we call in Hebrew, achdut. achdut meaning a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood amongst all of us, uh, because as the quote says, have we not all one father? Beautiful. So to me, that's always been a very important uh, way to, to uh, educate myself and to show other people what I think God feels is very important that we all feel about each other as uh, children of the same father. And um, truth is, since we made Aliyah to Israel, since we moved here 12 years ago, I haven't, I haven't really found those kinds of avenues uh, that were as rich as when I was in Baltimore. But I also have to be honest in saying that I haven't really looked for them. So I don't feel the loss of it. But I do know that in those many, many years in the rabbinate in America, I really felt enriched uh, so much by the many friendships, the conferences, yes. the, the workshops that we all did together. And it was just fabulous. That's awesome. I remember when we had coffee two weeks ago. You mentioned how meaningful some of those interactions were. But I don't, just want to pause for a moment, not to get into it, um, but it may be, maybe for sure for another conversation. Having a father, parents who are Holocaust survivors and specifically engaging Christians when during pre preceding and during the Holocaust, Jews were subject to in Europe were subject to some tremendous anti-Semitism, of course, genocide. And often that was coming at the hands of the church. The fact that your father as a survivor had that um, big picture and 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 was able to interact really speaks a great deal about him as a as a human being. I, I'm I'm very impressed. Thank you. I appreciate that. Perhaps one uh, one short vignette. Yeah. Is uh, when he was in Providence uh, again as the ritual director of this large conservative uh, temple of about a thousand families at the time. He made it a very special mission for him to go to the governor's office on the holiday of Hanukkah. Yeah. Not only the governor of, of uh, Rhode Island, but also sometime during the Hanukkah eight-day holiday to also go to the mayor's office of Providence, Rhode Island, Providence being the capital of, of Rhode Island. And he brought Hebrew school students and day school students uh, to these events and with the mayor and the governor being present. You know, he didn't want to just be in the office, but he wanted the yeah. these officials to be present when he was doing that. And he would always say, 
that the reason he wanted to do that is because when he was living back in Hungary, uh, the Jewish people had no power, no influence, and uh, they were just subjects and victims all the time. And so yeah. he wanted to be in a place that represented the Jewish people having some influence with the governor, mm -hmm. having some influence with the mayor. And perhaps for him, that was one way to score a victory over the oppressors. Here mm -hmm. he was in this, the, the high seats of power where during his lifetime in Hungary, that was virtually impossible. Wow, how meaningful. I, I look forward one-on-one, -on -one, but maybe we'll share this kind of a conversation with, uh, matter of fact, you're, you're triggering a very interesting idea for a subsequent podcast. So Wonderful. Let, let's let's jump into today's topic. I want to give a little bit of background. I, I, I spoke about the topic of re applying religious modesty in, in our everyday lives. Today, we're going to have this important conversation um, about areas of traditional Judaism that relate to modesty and how we apply them and how they impact our daily lives. Now, in the course of my building bridges over the last, uh, most of, most of the last two decades, I've had many pastors bemoan to me privately that it's not only the case when Christians leave the church, leave, not the church, but church, that they don't necessarily behave in ways that are modest, but how too many more and more are coming to church dressed at least in ways that are immodest and appropriate. So I, I, I want to speak to our Christian friends as the older brothers in, you, in, in our case and talk about how we do things. Um, in Judaism, we look to the Torah, the biblical roots of, uh, of areas addressing issues relating to religious modesty and how we apply them in our daily lives. Because as you correctly pointed out, the Torah is not static. It's the interpretations and how they're applied to the centuries evolve. There are lots of, it was your word, nuance. Um, so I, before I get into the specifics, there are a lot of them, and we could probably go on for a few hours, we're, but right. we're not. Um, can you help us understand some of the just sort of the biblical core issues that we need to look at relating to modesty that govern how we, you and I live our lives? Right. Well, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> well, maybe a good place to start if you looked in the Torah, which is about 5,888 verses, spanning from the beginning of Genesis, the creation of the world, all the way to the passing of Moses, if you were to look at all of those verses, uh, you wouldn't necessarily find any specific verses that speak about, for example, separation of genders in order to, uh, to have more modesty. Um, but maybe a good place to start is on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, which is the day of Yom Kippur, okay. the day of atonement, 25 days of fasting, praying, repenting, etc. Uh, and on the afternoon of Yom Kippur, there is a very specific Torah reading that relates to, uh, it's found in the book of Leviticus, and it relates to uh, relationships that we need to be careful about not having. Good point. So, right. So it talks about uh, not having uh, any kind of uh, sensual or sexual relations uh, with with parents, with uh, relatives, with various categories. And that already gives us a clue that on the holiest day of the year, we're being taught that this is a very, very supreme value of being very, very careful about who we relate to in a sensual and sexual way and to not cross these kinds of boundaries. So already on the holiest day of the year, uh, the Torah teaches us that we have to be very, very careful 
about how we relate to the opposite uh, gender and how careful we need to be in order to not cross boundaries with them that are seen in the eyes of God as uh, as not desirable and even worse, uh, punishable. Right. Uh, so th- that perhaps is a good place to begin. This shows us on the holiest day of the year how valuable God feels this issue of modesty and and protecting our own sensuality and sexuality, and again not crossing lines between ourselves and and uh, and family relatives. And very often one could see that list in the book of Leviticus and say, you know, who would think of that? Who would think of having relations with your sister, with your mother, your mother-in-law, your, your father? Who would even think of that? And, and the answer is people think of that. Right. You know, it's not so easy to dismiss. It's not so easy, unfortunately. Not so easy to dismiss. And, and therefore there need to be regulations about it. Now, from, from some of these Torah uh, kinds of an ideas, then we have, uh, it, it ripples to many of our rabbinic sages and scholars yes. to further interpret what could that mean and how do we infuse that into our daily lives? How do we create these kinds of, uh, if you will, boundaries that, that uh, allow us to not cross over these lines? What kinds of things do we have to do? So, for example, in Judaism, uh, we have a principle called, I'll say it in Hebrew and then translate it. Uh, the principle is called Asusiag la Torah, which mm-hmm. means make offense for the Torah. In other words, you know, we have 613 commandments in our five books of Moses that we can discern and name these 613 commandments. Uh, some of them are you shall do and some of them are you shall refrain from. But in these 630 commandments, the idea is that the commandments also need a fence around them to make sure that we have certain ideas in place and certain regulations that make sure that we don't get close to violating what not, what ought not to be violated. So a good example might be going into a museum. And there are certain things that the officials of the museum don't mind you touching and interacting Uh, with, engaging with. And there are certain things, there will be a rope. There will be a, a kind of a rope. Oh, very nice. That is that is before another rope that could even be before another rope, which is warning you, don't get close to this 13,000-year-old, you know, from the Ming dynasty or whatever. Uh, they don't want you to get near it. So you would say, well, maybe one rope is enough. But no, because you might be able to cross that rope and go touch it and it might break. So there could be a a rope before that rope and another rope before. It's just a way of reminding us, don't don't get so close to this thing that you might break it. And and by the way, you and I are going to respect a rope there and not cross over it in in 99.999% of the cases. But it's but the same idea with all of the all of the forbidden relationships that we're that we that we read about on Yom Kippur yes. on the most holy day again right. ninety nine point I would hope it's nine point nine 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 percent of us are never going to even contemplate such things but it's those extra boundaries for those who might trip up right and the reason we trip up is because we as human beings are uh, we're created in a way that we have many different kinds of passions yeah. We have passions for food, passions for excitement, entertainment, 
passions for a spiritual life, passions to connect with a higher power. Uh, and one of these passions uh, is clearly a sexual passion. Yeah. And, yeah. and we have to find the right channels and the right ways to use that sexual passion in a way that uh, that makes God uh, proud of how we've used Excellent. that particular passion. Excellent. I want to, I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned Yom Kippur because I always find it, I never really sat and thought about it, I, I think in fairness, but I, but, but I've noticed that it's Yom Kippur. It's the most holy day. It's the day I'm supposed to be the most sincere in my relationship and my prayers and my repentance for, for everything that I've done in the previous year. And yet I feel like it's almost sort of lurid. Why are you throwing this stuff in my face? That's not even, like you said, no one's 99.9999% of us are never going to think about, but, it, but, but I like how you established that that's setting on that most holy day. We're setting up the barrier for even though most, those most lurid things. Um, right. Because, I, because sexual passion is what it is. Yeah. And, and, and that it relates to, to the issue of modesty. You know, I, I want to get into the, to, to the, um, some of the specifics, but before I do, you raised a very interesting point about nuance. And I want to just kind of lead in and ask you to respond. A lot of Christians, you know, this, you, you you've interacted with Christians. You do interact. Uh, with Christians, look at Judaism as being very legalistic, um, that, that we're more focused on the letter of the law rather than than those nuances and the spirit or or the law itself. And and what I'd like to, for you to do, if you can, is just let's talk for a few minutes about you know why why the nuance and and how how that nuance has even changed in our lifetime. Yeah, I think that's a very important uh, question, a very important issue to talk about. Uh, let, let's take, for example, um, uh, a separation of genders within a synagogue, within an Orthodox synagogue. So, for example, if you were to walk into an Orthodox synagogue, you would see that there is um, there is something that divides between the genders. I don't mean divides like makes them argue and makes them debate, but there is a <laughs> physical divider between yes. men and women. Now, in some synagogues, it happens to be a very, very subtle divider to the extent that one of the synagogues that I was a rabbi at in, in Stamford, Connecticut, it's a synagogue that had very beautiful, unusual architecture. And, and church groups would, would come pretty often during the week to come and see it. And one of the rabbis would show them, this is what we do here. And this is the Holy Ark. And this is a Torah scroll, etc. And uh, at the very end, we would say to them, uh, by the way, you've entered an Orthodox synagogue where the gender sits separately. Can anybody tell us where this gender separator is? Uh -huh. And nine out of 10 times, they would not have any clue because this thing that, that separated the men and the women was so subtle and it was so brilliantly uh, constructed that the average person would not know. I, I have no idea where the different, where the men and the women sit. I have yeah. no idea what physical thing separates the men and the women when they come into this, into this synagogue to pray. So you have something like that that's constructed in a very, very uh, inobtrusive way, but people know where to sit. And then you have other kinds of situations where there might be like a floor to ceiling kind of a barrier or a separation between the men and the women. Uh, and that's, I would say that's kind of like the other extreme. So. 
nuance is very important because besides have, if in an Orthodox synagogue, that seems to be the standard is to have men and women sit separately for various reasons, which we can certainly get into. But besides that, there's also other issues you have to uh, want, you want to be sensitive about. So for example, wherever the women sit, uh, are they able to see what is going on? Uh, are they able to hear what is going on? Are yeah. they able to see who's participating and who's not participating? It's kind of like sitting behind a barrier when you're watching a movie. Wow. So you can hear the audio, but you can't see the film. Wow. So, so various Orthodox synagogues have to be sensitive to the needs of their worshipers. And in some temples or some synagogues, Orthodox synagogues, uh, the worshipers are fine to have a floor to ceiling kind of a separator. In other synagogues, they, they are not looking for something like that. They're looking to have something more subtle or something more um, an, an enabling equal audio access, visual access, etc. And um, so again, these kind of nuances will depend on what are the needs of that congregation. Well, what are the needs? And where I was going with the, with, with the, the gist of my question was, I, I don't know that it's in our lifetime. I, you're a little bit older than I, but I don't know how much. It doesn't matter. Um, but, but more or less in our, if not in our lifetime, in our historical memory, we know that movies used to be made that that if, if there was a a scene that had a man and a woman alone on a bed, sure. someone had to have a foot on the ground. Now, right, right now, right. it's it, I, I think and as as that much as that was common, now you would never see such a thing. And the opposite, everything, even Disney movies, are sexualized. And sure. and to that extent, as we get into this conversation, I want to I want to ask. I want to ask our listeners to listen and, and also to overlay how the needs have changed. You know, we're, we're also now aware and, and, and going to your point about Yom Kippur, we're also now much more aware in our lives today of uh, sexual predators. Um, and, and these are things that are really super important. Before we go further, I just want by to... By the way, we're, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt there. We're very aware that even by the people that no matter what the religion is, even by the people that we've trusted, Yes. To be faithful yes. to the laws, whatever religion yes. it is, and to be faithful to these ideas. Uh, unfortunately, we've, we've been let down by the behavior of, of the, the kind of clergy that we trusted to not only be models of, of this kind of correct behavior. Uh, we've been very surprised and very disappointed. So it's not mm-hmm. just the, the common person. No. Nope. Uh, it, it can be people who are steeped, steeped in faith. And tradition, and and uh, and and laws within the the uh, that particular religion, correct. Uh, who are also we see how fragile the human being is. No matter what your job is, uh, no matter what your station in life, this is uh, a a passion that yeah. God inserted into every human being, and some are able to uh, rein it in. In, in proper ways, and some people just fall prey, P-R-E-Y, they just fall prey to this kind of passion. And uh, so again, so we see it, we see it everywhere, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Okay, let's take a break for, for a second, and then I want to come back and dig into some of the issues and share with, with, with who, our listeners why we're even having this conversation this week. 
when you think of Jerusalem, you probably think of its historic and biblical sites. Run for Zion is a trip unlike any other. You will join tens of thousands of Israelis interacting with Jerusalem as you never have and never imagined you would. You'll connect with and bless Israelis of all backgrounds. If you've never been to Israel and are dying to come visit or haven't been for a while and can't wait to get back, Run for Zion is the opportunity for you. And now, if you register today, you can join us for as little as $29. Yes, that's for real, just $29. Run for Zion is a pilgrimage and service experience that gets you out of the tour bus, interacting with the people and the land. Check out runforzion.com for details and come run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, so Rabbi Adler, I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying and I, and I hope that other Me people- too gotten already a lot out of the conversation um i think when you and i had coffee two weeks ago this oh well, i was it was actually the day after the incident that we're talking about right or going to be speaking about took place and it was already in the news but it continued to go in the news here in israel and i have yet to find jewish non-jewish anyone who's really paying attention uh except for anyone who's really paying attention to the nuance of what happens here in the news anyone overseas who really knows what went on? So I want to lay it out and then then talk about it as an it as an example. Okay. Um, two weeks ago, we were ending President Biden's uh, visit here in Israel, and on the last day of that visit, he had a very interesting uh, situation. He received the Presidential Medal of Honor uh, at the president official president's residence. There was a big ceremony involved. There were some entertainment and performances and, of course, speeches and presentation. Immediately afterward, and this, I think, is one of the things that that, uh, President Biden is really good about, being warm, he went over to acknowledge and thank the singers, the duo, duo, a male and a female singer. Um, As he extended his hand, it happened to be Ron Donker, who was the the, the male, who who was there closest first, and, and, and they shook hands. And then President Biden ex- extended his hand to the, the woman singer, Yuval Dayan. And when he did so, she clasped her hands together almost in a praying uh, position in front of herself and kind of acknowledged with a gentle bow um, because she had a beautiful smile, I have to it add. It was a beautiful smile. A beautiful smile, a gentle bow. It was not in any way dismissive. Oh, gosh. It no. was it appreciative. It was yeah. appropriate. It was proper. Right, but she is an Orthodox Jewish woman who, like you, like I, at, from the from the male perspective, uh, observe the, the traditions of modesty where we don't typically ex- forget extending a hand, but even go out of our way to have physical contact with anyone who's not our relative by marriage to our wives or 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 um, biological family. And she now, was criticized. Jonathan, if I can just add a piece that I think is relevant. Yeah. Uh, I've heard her being described as a newly, a newly observant woman. Important. A very important thing because some people who are newly observant can't possibly know all of the uh, various rituals that we have and are likely not to know the nuances. The nuance. We're going to keep the coming back to the what, N-word. What you do when, what you don't do when, what can override a certain ritual or a certain restriction. Yeah. When is it appropriate to do it, not to do it? You know, if you're, if, if the president of the United States is ready to shake your hand, uh, could you possibly uh, uh, shake their hand, even though Orthodox women generally 
you know, don't don't even touch right. people who are not married to them. Right. So that that I think is a very important thing that she was a newly observant and and may not be aware of all the various nuances and repercussions. Correct. And what what things can override various uh, restrictions and rituals. One hundred percent. And so she was criticized for, uh, for refusing, quote unquote, yes. to shake his hand. Uh, there's another journalist who I respect tremendously who called her response immature. And of course, there was a fear of embarrassing the president, which ultimately the U.S. ambassador to Israel clarified that the president was not embarrassed and, 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 um, and, and was inspired by her sense of religious tradition. But let, let's talk about, you, 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 just, you just helped um, throw in some nuance to the conversation. You know, you, you and I have coffee with our respective wives, or you come to my house for Shabbat. I'm going to extend my hand to you, but not to Rivka and, 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 and vice versa the, the, the same way, because that's just how we live. But there are right. areas. I, I just want to say, if I may, that if I were to come to your house, right, I would shake your hand and I would be looking at your wife while I'm shaking your hand and saying, it's so nice to meet you. That's In other lovely. words, I wouldn't shake her hand necessarily. But I would I would want her to know that the extend the greeting I'm extending to you easily goes to her as well as I'm still shaking your hand but yeah. looking at her face. Yeah, and and by the way, and I love how you said that because that's very purposeful. So so here's my question: Let's take this situation. The fact that she's newly observant um, is an important piece as to perhaps her lack of having a broader picture, or even if she had a broader picture, she said, "Look, this is how I'm comfortable." I don't care if he's president, uh, that, that this is not how I'm, but, but let's, let's, how do, how do we apply this with the sense of nuance into our modern lives where, 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 where physical touch between people who are not married, um, ma- married to one another or biologically related, um, typically is not in our, in our, uh, frame of reference. Right. Well, first I want to point out that, uh, when people, uh, interact with the Queen of England. Ah. She has many, many rules about to touch, to shake. You don't shake until she shakes, etc. There, there are several all, all kinds of rituals that are uh, surrounding meeting the Queen. So it's interesting to me that that's okay, but this finger Yuval Dayan is not allowed to have her sense of propriety. You know what I'm saying? The Queen yeah. can have it. But this woman seems to not be uh, given the same kind of courtesy that if she doesn't feel like doesn't want to shake a hand, then she doesn't shake a hand. Or, again, or by the way, adding yeah. to that, or when he left here two weeks ago and went to Saudi Arabia, had the crown prince shown up with his wife, he would have not have even thought about extending his hand to the crown right. prince's wife. Right. And, and one could say that uh, over the last, uh, you know, period of time that uh, President Biden has been president, there have been occasions where he's kind of turned away from his podium to shake a hand and it's not been there. OK, that's a whole other issue. But uh, <clears throat> I, I think that, um, for example, you mentioned in my uh, in my biography that I was a an aide to a rabbi Soloveitchik. Yes. Who, at, while he was alive, easily was one of the five top rabbis in the world living yes. at the time. Yes. Easily. Um, uh, it was said about him that at the end of lectures, you know, people want to come up and say something to him, ask him a question, uh, appreciate his lecture or whatever. 
I heard it said about him that uh, if a woman would extend a hand to him, not knowing the protocol, he would shake it. Now, here's a, a, a great Orthodox rabbi who understood that there's a nuance and perhaps he didn't want to embarrass. So, it, now, so he, could, he could have said to the woman, I'm sorry, but I don't shake hands with women. Could have said that, but he felt that uh, under under those circumstances, he didn't want to create any kind of uh, uh, discomfort or whatever. And and honestly, I don't know what his thinking was, but you know, you have things like that. You have in some Orthodox synagogues where the Orthodox rabbi, after the worship service is over, they have like a collation, uh, yeah. a little food, a little drink, a little wine, a little soda, d- different kinds of things. And uh, I know of several Orthodox rabbis who during that period of uh, sociability, they hold a cup of water or soda in their right hand in order to obviate needing to shake hands. Okay. Now, you know, would they do that with men too? I don't know. But this is their way of saying or they're signaling that I'm not comfortable to shake hands with the opposite gender. And I'm I'm not refusing. I'm like holding something. So, so you could say, well, put it in your other hand and shake a hand. But, so, but what's the exception? Is, what, what's the exception? What's the nuance? Where you mentioned Rabbi Soloveitchik that he would yes. do so. Yes. Why, why would he do so? And, and you and I might choose not to, or Yuval Dayan in this case, being criticized for not doing so. Where is that nuance? How do we apply that on a day-to-day basis? That's a very good question. Uh, we go back to the image of the ropes at the... Uh, at the uh, museum. Okay. And there are some rabbis who believe that there has to be an absolute rule, an absolute cannot cross this line. Uh, and therefore they, they don't, they don't uh, shake hands with other, with women who are not their wives. Uh, they don't touch, they don't uh, elbow fist pump, whatever. <laughs> they don't do any of that. And there are other rabbis who feel that in a social context, uh, we're not talking about a handshake that could lead to uh, to uh, something that's not an appropriate uh, relationship. They feel that this is a social context and we don't have to be worried about it. But the good thing is that even within orthodoxy, you find rabbis who are, I hesitate to use the words liberal and, and more conservative about it. You find rabbis who feel that it's, it's an issue, except for maybe certain social occasions, it's okay to shake a hand. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily, you know, kiss the other woman like many people do today, you know, give a kiss, a smooch. You see on many game shows that, you know, people kiss each other, maybe know each other. They, right. they met each other two seconds ago. Um, and you have other Orthodox rabbis who feel that that line is so fragile that you just never know. You just never know. So even though you're in a social context and you're just schmoozing around, as they say in Yiddish, you're just talking, chatting, uh, socializing, there, there are many rabbis who feel that even that has a, that can be a pregnant moment for leading to the next thing, that next rope, uh, if you will, at the museum. But so what you have, but what I'm grateful is that within orthodoxy itself, you have rabbis and authorities and scholars who feel that you can be a little bit more, let's use the word lenient about it and not worry about the next step because the context is very important and we should take it into account. And then you have rabbis on the other end of the spectrum 
who feel that it's an inviolable um, uh, rule. Uh, we, we don't make any uh, excuse for touching, handshaking, kissing, period. So some of the some of the instances where we might we where we might um, do that are also to avoid embarrassment. You know, it's legitimate. You have the president of the United States visiting. You don't want to embarrass him. That's not a right. that's not a that's not a good thing. And, and by the way, no one as as Orthodox Jews, I don't think we anyone wants to embarrass anybody right. um, in any circumstance. Where, where does that play in as, as far as preventing embarrassment? You're you're talking about a social aspect, which someone could. I mean, no one could theoretically misconstrue. But what about that? You know, how about I'm in a business meeting and we're about to sign a contract and I'm signing a deal with somebody and on the other side of the table is who's also signing the contract is a woman. And it could be a, any kind of contract. And at the end of the uh, end of a business deal, at least in Western society, it's very common to shake hands. Why not? Why not do that? Well, again, it depends upon the authorities that you follow. Okay. You know, if you wanted to make an independent decision about it, you could, but then you would feel like, you know, who, who whose authority did I either uh, just uh, fall in line and feel that's okay? Or did I really violate something? There's always personal autonomy. Sure. And then you have to live with what whatever uh, you've done. Great. But, it depends on the authorities that you follow. And there are more lenient authorities in a case like that. And there are more strict authorities in a case like that. Well, they would say there is no situation whatsoever where you can cross that line. And others who would say, listen, in this kind of a business context, it, it, it's not a sexualized uh, context in any way. It's a business, it's a this and that. And if you want to avoid uh, embarrassment, then do what you got to do. Got it. But what I'm pointing out is that we're, we're fortunate in the sense that in the Orthodox community, you have reliable authorities who rule the gamut. They rule yes. the gamut. Good. Good point. Now, you, you mentioned something about an individual choice. And, I, and this may, may stray from the rabbinic or the, the, the particular religious. But I, I found I want to move away from the Yuval Dayan situation and physical okay. touch. But I want to ask you a question because I found there to be a tremendous contradiction, maybe even a paradox or double standard. And, and you use the word liberal in a different context. Okay. It seemed that most of the criticism of Yuval Dayan not shaking President Biden's hand came from a liberal worldview that didn't honor, that doesn't honor her, her necessarily being a Orthodox Jewish religiously observant woman and suggesting that it's okay in this circumstance, even if she has those values, to compromise those values. But yet, one would think that in that same liberal perspective that's criticizing her for adhering to her religious views, one would think that of all the sectors in, in, in society, that would be the one that upholds her right to decide who she wants to touch or be touched by. And, and I'm curious, we may have said, we, we may have already addressed it, but I just want to know, is there anything in there in terms of that extra, that personal choice that, that we apply in the case of religious modesty? I, I think that, uh, you know, we have, we have our Holy Torah, the five books of Moses, uh, that gives us uh, guidelines 
It, it gives us uh, boundaries. It gives us lessons, uh, moral lessons and other kinds of lessons. And we uh, adhere to them as best as we understand them. And so uh, personal autonomy would say to you, uh, for example, you know, here I am with the president of the United States. Uh, am I going to embarrass him? And I, am I going to embarrass myself and my newly found uh, religious observant community? Uh, will people now think that I'm less observant than I am because I shook the, the hand of somebody who's not, oh, my, right, not right. my husband? So you, you almost have to, I, I kind of feel with her that she had to make like a split second decision. What is she going to do if he extends his hand? And I, for me personally, I think it would have been just as valid if she said, okay, in this case, you know, he's a world leader. Uh, I'm going to shake his hand. It's, it's a second, it's a second out of my life. Yes. And I don't want to engender all kinds of uh, stories and headlines and whatever that are going to overshadow everything else, which intended right. to do uh, right. that beautiful article that you wrote uh, about how this all of a sudden became the epicenter of, yeah. of uh, concern, you know, et cetera. Uh, but in the same way, you know, again, you talk about context. Let's say she went to a dinner and she was entertaining at a dinner where the president of the United States was, was, uh, was honored uh, or, or uh, acknowledged, and there was no kosher food. So Orthodox people are very, very meticulous about eating only kosher food. Right. So, so would we say, well, since she shook the hand of the president or didn't shake the hand of the president, <laughs> you know, uh, I guess she ought to eat the kosher food or the unkosher food. So again, it's a matter of context. You know, to shake somebody's hand who's not your husband as an Orthodox woman, where does that fit in context or importance or level of uh, care and concern as compared to eating unkosher food at sure. that kind of a... So it, it's a scale. It's a scale. But again, at the other end of the extreme, there are rabbis, authorities, and scholars who would say there is no scale. Right. It's an absolute. Don't you, do it. You don't do this and you don't do that. And there's no room for compromise. And the and the interesting thing, in, in addition to the, the, the nuance that you added, that she's a newly observant woman, is the fact that that part of the program was unscripted. If she had been at a ceremony where she was being formally introduced, one yeah. would expect there to be a handshake and she could have planned it. But certainly nobody expected that the president of Israel and the president of the United States were going to walk over to these two singers and shake their hand. That was completely impulsive. So it wasn't only it wasn't only an act that would take a split second, but it was a decision in which she had a split second. And 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 she's for her to her credit, she stood by her her decision. Yeah, and in a sense, she was the queen. She was the queen of that moment. Excellent, literally. Excellent. So, like she it. has her rules, and she has her uh, religious and traditional preferences. Right. And she felt at that moment that that was very important for her. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, it's very important for her credentials yes. within the Orthodox Jewish community to have withheld that uh, because that split second, if she would have shaken his hand, there would have been people in the Orthodox community of which she is a member who would have questioned it, questioned her uh, sincerity, etc. while others would have said, well, good for you. Good for you. You should have done that because he is who he is. And uh, we think you did the right thing. But again, 
there are other people who might have uh, felt that she re- really made the wrong decision. Yeah, well, and, and they've expressed themselves. Tremendous dynamic. I want to, there are a lot of other issues I want to try and take some time to talk, but just to t- take a minute for another quick break, and then, and then we're going to come back and talk about some of these other issues with the same framework of, of why we do what we do and the nuance involved. Excellent. If you're a parent like me, you know there are plenty of reasons to worry about our kids. But there's one particular issue with enormous consequences for our kids that many are uncomfortable discussing, online pornography. As kids spend more and more time online, they're being exposed to explicit sexual content at record rates. By age 13, many are exposed to graphic sexual content that has serious lasting consequences. Even though research links pornography exposure to worse mental health, unstable relationships, and other issues, the big tech companies are doing almost nothing to stop it. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Canopy, a new partner of ours that's helping parents take back control over what their kids see online. Canopy uses state-of-the-art artificial intelligence developed here in Israel to make the internet safe for our kids by blocking explicit material on every single website. You can learn more and subscribe with special rates at canopy.us. And when you use our special discount code, Genesis123 at checkout, you'll get 30 days free and 15% off your subscription forever. Your kids will thank you for life. Okay, great. Rabbi Adler, we, I, you know, I, I, I feel like we could, this really could go on for some time. We're going to, we're going to keep the, the conversation limited, but there is so much. And, and there is a lot. Because of the nuance, because yes. there, everything can be looked at from so many different perspectives. Um, we spoke, uh, you spoke earlier about the, the synagogue in which you were rabbi in Stamford, Connecticut specifically, and how the physical barrier that by separating, demarcating where men and women sit was to the, to, to most people, not, uh, not even observable. Um, in the context. And by the way, if I, if I may just inject, I'm sorry. Yeah. At, at another synagogue I served at in, in Baltimore, Maryland, <clears throat> um, for many, many years, it's not the same way now. For many, many years, there was no physical barrier. The men sat on one side. The women ah, sat on the other. Ah, but again, that was a response to the congregation of 1,300 sure. families, most of whom would not have wanted a physical barrier. Got it. Right. So, so the minimal was at least to, to have them sit separately. Okay. Got it. That's interesting. So th- that's specifically in the context of prayer. Now, there are specific locations, yes. holy places. Specifically, I'm thinking the Western Wall, where, yes. where is, where there is prayer. We go there. We go, we're not just standing. And taking pictures, but we're praying when we're yes. touching the wall, and that's a very intimate moment with God. Um, it, it, is there anything else to add by way of uh, of a separation between the sexes in places like that, over and above what you've said vis-a-vis the synagogue? Well, first of all, I want to say about locations like that that there are pictures and paintings of the Western Wall, what we call the Kotel Western Wall where there was no separation and men and women were praying together. Correct. Uh, and today we have a very, very different situation where men and women are not only separate, uh, but there are, unfortunately, we read stories where th- those who want to uh, pray in, in a mixed gendered area, which is available now at another part of the Western Wall, it's the same Western Wall, it's just a different section, uh, where people who want to pray in a mixed gender kind of a way 
uh, are, are taunted and worse, unfortunately, by those who don't agree that that's a way to pray. Right. But, but again, I mentioned that because years and years ago, it was not that way. And, and it right. is that way now. Some would say to an extreme. There's also, uh, my wife and I were in Tiberias not too long ago. Yes. And there is the, uh, the uh, burial place of Maimonides, Moses yeah. Maimonides, sure. also known in Hebrew as the Rambam, lived right. from 1135 to 1204. I remember days visiting that graveside, as far as I remember, unless I'm, you know, taken <laughs> at too much vodka, I remember there was no gender separation there. And now there is. Sure. And there are many locate many holy places where before years and years ago uh, there was no separation. Now there is. So, uh, in a sense, I, I would say that the entire world has taken one big step to the right in in religious matters, uh, and maybe perhaps to be more careful, to be more restrictive, as opposed to being more liberal about things. So in a world, in a world where sexuality and the and the barriers are broken around around us in society um every second every yeah. second yeah. like you, you mentioned the word sexualized yeah. everything is sexualized even from 30 years ago you're trying to sell a beautiful car and there's a woman you know on the hood well what's she got to do with the car right but even things of that nature are sexualized and and as we know today in society everything is out in the open okay, okay. everything so there is some value to being more restrictive and to being more careful, making a fence around uh, what we do uh, in terms of gender. And uh, well, let, let's take, a, for example, Orthodox people sitting on a bus. Sure. Sitting on a bus. So there are many Orthodox uh, people who there, there are many Orthodox buses that are gender separated. There's a, a, a curtain going down the middle and the men sit on one side, the women sit on the other side. By the way, but, but know these, are these are used by people who want that. The private buses, these are not public buses. Right, they're private buses used by people who want that separation. Yes. So want to be more careful, not sit next to the other opposite gender, rub elbows or whatever. Right. Um, and, and again, there are people today who insist on sitting only with their own gender, even on a bus. Sure. But but there's a great authority, Rabbi Feinstein, who passed away in 1986, who was considered at that time the world's leading authority on Jewish law. Yes. He ruled that when you go on a bus, even as an Orthodox male or, or female, don't worry about it. Just sit wherever you sit and don't uh, fuss about it. Don't move people around. Don't make a scene. So even somebody like that, who was considered and still considered a very, very supreme authority, if you will. Sure. He understood that in these kind of situations and context, you can't really uh, have the atmosphere that you may want to have. And you just sit down and, you know, kind of deal with it. Interesting. I, it's interesting you say that because I've been taking public transit more recently here. And I I particularly don't personally care if, yeah. I, if, if I'm sitting next to a woman or not. However, I want to be respectful if a woman's sitting by herself. I'm going to not choose to sit there because I want to be respectful of her and her space, which actually exactly. leads to it leads to an interesting question, a unique Israel scenario. Okay. We have a thing here called tramping, hitchhiking, which which many people around the world find it very strange that Israelis with a proclivity for terror, acts of terror. We had a 
situation here in our neighborhood in uh, 2014, where three boys were picked up by terrorists yes. and were killed. Yes. So where Terrible. that could happen, and there is that threat, but nevertheless, we have this very easy going way of getting into a complete stranger's car and offering rides. And, and that's a, I happen to like that. I happen to go out of my way when I can to offer rides to people, A, yes, to be helpful. And same I also, here. for me, it's two things, to be helpful, but also I know I'm a safe driver. And if, if they're getting into a car with me, I can reasonably ensure according to my standards that they're going to get where they need to go safely. And I don't know about that about everybody else. But what is a fascinating thing, if I'm driving in my car alone and I pull over and a woman is hitchhiking, I would say about 50% of the time, she's going to get in and she's going where I'm going. She's going to get into the back seat of the car and not sit with me in the front seat. Even if there's that, that, that thing, that plastic divider with the, with the storage right, compartment. Right. Talk about that in terms of um, specifically as an Israeli thing, help, help our non-Israelis and non-Jewish friends see how that plays out. Well, it's a very interesting, again, it's, it's, it's part of the same topic of uh, being very careful about gender separation, et cetera. Um, interestingly enough, in my experience, the women, the women in our community, which we share, you mentioned yep. we're, we're kind of neighbors, we are neighbors. Uh, the women, the older women, generally tend to sit in the back because they see my kippah, they see my skull cap, and oh, they, assume, yeah. they probably assume that I would prefer that. And wow. I, I make, I don't say anything when they come in. I don't say, oh, would you please sit in the never? I wouldn't do that. Wherever they want to sit, they can sit. But it, the teenagers, the teenage girls that, that come into the car, invariably always sit in the front. Even if they are, they are visibly traditional, observant young women. So I find that more uh, among the uh, middle-aged older women sit, tend to sit in the back. But again, I make I don't say anything wherever they sit is fine with me. So you, that's a great to. observation because I just said how I won't get, get on a bus and sit next to a woman because I don't want to be in her space, but right. I don't mind personally. So you're saying that these women are looking and seeing, uh, assuming because we're a, a, a largely orthodox community here, that they get in the car with you or I and that, that, that they don't want to be in our space. Whether they whether they particularly care about it could be just a matter of not their own observance, but their own sensitivity to us. Huh? Exactly, exactly. And I, and I think it's fair. Let's say when you're on a bus and you see a, a, a woman who might be you would interpret as being religiously observant. I think it would be fair to say, pardon me, would you mind if I sit here? Yes, I think it's reasonable. She would yes. say, oh, sure. No problem. Or she might say, I would rather you not, which I'm happy to honor. Right. Sometimes it's the only seat left on the bus that's open, and then you have to make your own decisions. Uh, but yes, sometimes you do find these situations on buses. Uh, you find them at events, at events. Uh, for example, you're going to a lecture uh, that is given by an Orthodox male or female. Uh, now there is more and more situations where, it's, where the men and women are seated separately, even if it's not with a physical uh, divider. Yeah. This yeah. is men here. I mean, you find men's and women's only events where this event, this concert, this lecture, this performance, whatever, is only for women, by women, for women. Uh, or it's by men, for men. But it's well advertised that this is the, you know, if you're a male, you're welcome. And uh, today there are a lot of these things. I, I found many more than usual. Well, it's interesting you say that. I think I mentioned 
to you. I don't remember, but my uh, one of my daughters is I'm I'm told an outstanding dancer, but as a Orthodox Jewish woman, she only performs in front of women, and 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 of, of course I see her dancing around the house. Yes. But I've never actually seen her in a performance, nor, by the way, which is really fascinating, ha- have I been allowed to see even a video of it because of the sensitivities of the other women with whom she's dancing. And, and, and they don't give necessarily their um, approval for me as her father to, or, or anyone else for that matter to watch it. So it's really interesting because it's fascinating. This is something that my daughter is by all the by the standards of all of the women in my family, and she may be overhearing this conversation in the other room. I don't know. Is an extraordinary dancer, but I've actually never had the privilege of seeing that, which is, which of course I understand. Um, to, but I, I've even joked about wearing an Arab burqa and showing up just so I can oh. see her. But yeah. I, I, That's I, a great idea. It's a great idea, but I, I think I'll avoid it for the time being. But, oh, I, you know what? Right. That's, by, that's, by the way, we have we have a similar situation. I'm sorry, a similar situation with recordings. Yes, women who put out recordings, uh, CDs, tape, whatever, uh, and it says on the whatever's holding oh. the thing, it'll say uh, this is for this is to be listened for by women. Now, of course, they can't control who's listening to it. Of course. But they ju- they certainly show a preference that, uh, you know, we would appreciate if only women would listen to this, uh, thinking that if men were to listen to it, it could be arousing in some even minimal way. And, and now you start with the with the make offense for the Torah, you know. Wow, wow, uh, very nice. And some have men listen to it because who knows? Very interesting. And and by the way, you know this and I know it. I don't know if, if Rivka's involved with it, um, but there's here in 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 the, where we live, a yes. all women's performance. Uh, they and they do musicals and and apparently it's wonderful. But again, I've never seen it and that's fine. Um, beginning to wrap up, I want to just yes. touch one more topic, which I think is more um, broad as far as genders, men and women, men and women, um, which yeah. is dress in public. I dress in public, but I'm going to include that in terms of in prayer, in worship. Um, that's that's very personal. That's very individual. It doesn't involve physical contact with somebody else. Um, yes. The, go into that for for a little bit, please, about uh, about how and why that's something that plays out in our lives in the sense of applying modesty. Well, the idea is, is that, um, and this really applies to men and women, but it seems to only make news when it applies to women. Uh, the idea is that women, uh, if possible, ought to dress in a, a, in a modest way. Now, what, what are the rules of that kind of modesty? They may include uh, ideas about how long a skirt should be or a dress. They might include um, uh, ideas about uh, a sleep sleeve length in order to to cover as much part of your body as you can. They might include um, covering uh, shoulders, might include uh, how much do you cover uh, on your chest, uh, your neckline, neckline, etc. These 50 years ago uh, were not such an issue as they are today. But again, this is the context. The context is that today, as you said, and I said, everything is sexual everything is out in the open. 
And, uh, and, uh, but, but even men, men, even though it, it's not as prominent, but men also um, should try to avoid showing as much, let's call it skin as possible, yep. because sex is a passion. And it, it, any little thing can trigger it. And that's why the rabbis, scholars, and authorities of today are even more and more careful about trying to cover up what really has traditionally, uh, you know, been available to the sight of, of other people. Sure. Now, uh, in, in orthodoxy, there is the sense, and I don't agree with it, there is a sense that a woman should dress modestly in order to not lure or to not provoke the eyesight of the men. Okay. You find why, that. Why do but, you disagree with that? I disagree with that because I don't think it's the woman's business Excellent. to, to, uh, um, to, to show herself in a way that wouldn't arouse the other gender. I don't think that's her business. It's, it's our job. Gender. It's our job to not get involved with such a thought. With right. Whether it's our job. It's our job to suppress whatever we need to suppress. But it's it's not the woman's job to not not be provocative. That's not her job. Yeah. But but at the same time, many many women find that the way they dressed in in terms of modesty and length and things of that nature, that many Orthodox women find, and I think even women in other religions find that the more modest they dress, the more that increases their spiritual connection with their God whoever their I, God is. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you said that. That's real yeah, important. And I, I think that's more the point. Yeah. It's more the point to increase her connection, her spiritual connection with herself and with her God than it is to make sure that the men are not aroused by how she's, how she's dressed. I love, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I agree with you, but, but it's an important, going back to the N-word, piece of nuance, yes. which we live, which, with, with, with which we live in our daily life and going back to what I said at the beginning, which some pastors have said to me, I wish, you know, when I, when I see members of my church in the mall, they, I, I, I'm shocked and embarrassed as to how um, they might dress. But I want to just add something. I have a 16 year old, almost 17 year old son working in a, in a Jewish camp this summer. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that he knew going in, not uh, that, that he's not allowed to wear, sleeveless shirts it's not it's not because he's going to offend some of the boys who are less muscular than right. he is it's, it's also right. uh, it's also a perspective of modesty right and, and it's also uh, you know a, a swimsuit for for a guy correct you know there are there are what i would call more modest swimsuits yeah and much less modest <laughs> kind of swimsuits and and that also but you know that but again we tend to see modesty today as only a women's issue, but it really is a man's issue as well. Which is why I wanted to conclude on this point, because up until now, what, while we've been talking about the sensitivity of men and women sitting together and, and, and women uh, shaking, or it's, it's both of us, but this was a really important thing to kind of wrap up with because it does apply and how we, it, you know, you, what's interesting, you and I are identifiable as Orthodox men. Our wives, for someone who's paying attention, are identifiable as Orthodox women. In an average church, it, I mean, someone might be wearing a cross, but there's no 
there's no exterior way of knowing that that person is a Christian. And, and therefore, how one behaves and how one dresses, um, it, it, there, there are many elements to it, but, but can and sh- the, the issue of modesty can and should be applied. Um, because ultimately, uh, ultimately, we're created in God's image, and I don't think that he's got a plan for us to be um, inappropriate with what he's created. I agree. I, I agree with you 100%. And um, when our kid, our girls, when they were smaller, sometimes we would walk in the street or in the mall, and we would see uh, a woman who is very immodestly dressed, immodestly yes. dressed. And my wife would say, and the girls sometimes repeat this now, they're older. My wife would say about that person, particular woman who just passed us by, my wife yes. would say, wow, look what she's giving away for free. Uh, interesting. It's a very interesting. I just want to mention one more thing. Sure. Um, uh, you, will, you will find today in very orthodox circles, very orthodox, but what is called in the press is ultra-orthodox. Yes. You will find orthodox women dressed in what looks like a burqa. Yes. Head to toe, black uh, garment, and the only yes. thing you can see is their eyes. Correct. And you would look at them and you say, wow, I, I think, I don't, is this a Jewish woman? And the answer is, there are, I don't, I don't think I would say many. I really don't know how many orthodox women wear this kind of a garment. But for them, it's another expression of wanting to be modest. I, I don't think it's a matter of they, they couldn't get their hair right that day and <laughs> they couldn't find the right outfit. So they're going to just wear, you know, this kind of a garment. I think it's a way for them to feel like either A, they don't want to provoke the men, whatever their thinking is, or this is, this is their personal private way of having extreme modesty, which helps them better connect to their creator. Sure. Sure. So that's an interesting phenomenon today. It's a very interesting phenomenon. And I think what we there are a number of takeaways from this, but I think that one of them is with the modesty um, in most cases, but not exclusively is is a um, an issue of sexuality and or, or what could be perceived as. And therefore, in this world that is sadly hypersexual, yes, um, we those barriers, whether in, in this case around the Torah, in the example you used around a piece of art in a particular museum, um, I, I, are, are all the more necessary. And I'm, by the way, I want to say as we wrap up, I'm really, I get great comments on 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 many of the episodes that we do. I'm really eager for for uh, people to to write in and share their thoughts on this and how they apply it. And if they have questions to please, um, please write in at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. And we'll, we'll... Oh, that would be great. I, I would also love to hear what people uh, are going to say and how they understand this. And uh, I, I think if I can just summarize in one sentence, please, I think the, 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 the way that the traditional Orthodox community today is uh, behaving in terms of dress and mixed gender, separate genders and all that. While to some people it may seem very extreme, I think we're just trying to take take things back. We're trying to provide it going in the other direction uh, and saying we've got to take back the street in a sense. Um, 
I remember years ago when I gave my first sermon, my first homily, wow. uh, if you will, to a congregation that I served uh, many years ago. I, we, I talked a little bit about this idea of modesty and et cetera. And I read a statistic that at that time, this goes back 20 years, it could be more or less now, I don't know. At that time, there were over 500 public schools nationwide in America that had very strict dress codes. Oh, yeah. Public schools, yeah. dress codes. Today, yeah. you can kind of wear whatever you want. And it's okay. But right. there were 500 public schools where the principals felt we need to take back the street, so to speak. I'm so uh, glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Public schools, 500. Now, is it 200 today? Is it 1,000 today? I don't know. But I found that extremely interesting, that they felt that that was an important way to create a sense of modesty and uh, not being provocative to either gender uh, by the way they dress. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Rabbi Elon Adler, um, what a delightful conversation. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you today, Jonathan, and to be with your listeners. And uh, please, God, we'll do it again with another another good topic. To be continued. Let me just wrap up with a couple of quick announcements. As we always say, if you stay with us this long, you deserve a reward. Beginning this month, the Genesis 12 123 Foundation is offering a special gift. Each month, we're giving away a special volume, what we call From Jonathan's Bookshelf. So please go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment and share the link to this program, we will select one winner at random. We've got a very special book on Jewish history picked out. We want uh, to encourage people to join us. We're always grateful. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area, I want to thank them. Go in and pop in and say hi and thank them for helping make this program possible. Please do so. And special thanks to our friends, the Coyne family, for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or some special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. This month, we're pay- this week, specifically, we're praying for our friend Renee Hammonds, who's, uh, who's, who's seriously ill. We'd love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially for qu- programs like this for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean Mountains. God bless you. Hallelujah.